0: which is the quietest gospel, the quietest gospel. I want to begin by reading James chapter 2, and it will give you maybe a little bit of an idea of where we're headed. James chapter 2, we will begin in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. There's a story of a man who was a German during World War II, And here's what he writes in a book that he wrote. I lived in Germany during the Nazi Holocaust. I considered myself a Christian. We heard stories of what was happening to the Jews, but we tried to distance ourselves from it because what could anyone do to stop it? A railroad track ran behind our small church, and each Sunday morning we could hear the whistle in the distance and then the wheels coming over the tracks. We became disturbed when we heard the cries coming from the train as it passed by. We realized that it was carrying Jews like cattle in the cars. Week after week, the whistle would blow. We dreaded to hear the sound of those wheels because we knew that we would hear the cries of the Jews en route to a death camp. Their screams tormented us. We knew the time the train was coming, and when we heard the whistle blow, We began singing hymns, and by the time the train came past our church, we were singing at the top of our voices. If we heard the screams, we sang more loudly, and soon we heard them no more. Years have passed, and no one talks about it anymore, but I still hear that train whistle in my sleep. God, forgive me. Forgive all of us who called ourselves Christians, yet did nothing to intervene. It's quite a story. As we hear that, we think what a tragedy it was. We consider um, what went on during the Holocaust and the Christians who uh, many of them simply either justified or ignored what was going on in their midst. (coughs) And we consider that uh, it couldn 't possibly be that we would uh, we would ever take part in something of that nature, um, but I want to take a moment before we really dig into what this is and consider what are some of the things perhaps in our culture uh, or in our Uh, our nation's past or even currently that we can look at and say um, that while the church has a great responsibility to address that we've either been silent or very quiet at least in or um, we have given the responsibility over to politics and government what are some of those things perhaps Abortion. abortion absolutely the big one right so, by and large, the church as a whole uh, has, uh, has done less and less to address the great atrocity of abortion, and, um, and more and more has handed it over to the legal system in an attempt to uh, do something politically about it, which is not wrong, of course, but um, what is the church's responsibility? What else? okay so we've taken our responsibility to care for the poor and needy and downtrodden and we've handed that over to government in a lot of ways we've uh, we've um we've become settled into a welfare state uh that we pay our taxes so the government provides for the needs and so uh we direct people to sign up for food stamps and things instead of caring for their needs certainly what else Okay, sure. So taking a hard look at conflict and war and things like that and asking hard questions. Are these things biblically justified? And if not, what are we doing about it? Sure. What else? What about historically? Slavery. Slavery. It was justified by many Christians, right? The enslavement of other human beings for their profitable ends. You read a lot of very great um, Christians' um, and, uh, and they have justifications for slavery because of their cultural time and what they were in and their, uh, their seeming ability to try and justify it. So these are only a few examples um, in history of what we see of what we call the quietest gospel. Um, so let's, let's think about um, the, uh, the implications of this the evangelical versions of the quietist gospel. We'll begin with the idea that the gospel is only about individual salvation. The gospel is only about individual salvation. Um, I, I don't know how many of you, um, I'm assuming most of us, if not all of us, know uh, the TV commentator... Um, uh, the political commentator Glenn Beck uh, is—he's a, a Mormon. Um, uh, very recently, he was being challenged. Uh, he was addressing the challenges of evangelicals and things like that, um, speaking um, speaking as though he was uh, a Christian. And in doing so, he said um, that salvation—the gospel—is about individual salvation only. Uh, because they were, there was some talk about liberal political views being baptized in Christian lingo. So these liberal, uh, the liberal items on the agenda were being pushed through using sort of Christian language and Scripture, perhaps. And so Glenn Beck tried to challenge this, saying the gospel is only about individual salvation. And so from a Mormon worldview, from, uh, from the worldview of what truly is a cult, I agree with... Uh, Pastor Jeffress from First Baptist in Dallas. Mormonism is a cult. Um, From that worldview, salvation truly is an individual thing. It is simply about who we are as individuals. Uh, Surprisingly, maybe, maybe not surprisingly, sadly, many evangelicals came to support what Beck said about this. Um, what, what is wrong with that statement? What is wrong with saying that the gospel is about individual salvation only? Give me your thoughts. What's wrong with that? Okay, so certainly that the gospel is uh, far wider uh, than just me, so that's certainly part of it. What else? Excellent. Sure. Did, you, did everyone hear what Earl said? It takes the idea of the church, it takes the church and sort of throws that out the window. Now it's just me and Jesus, uh, but the idea of me being as a part of a community, uh, edifying other believers, building them up, building community, um, holding one another accountable, studying the Word together, worshiping together, all these things are sort of, uh, they are sidelined because what's most important is me and Jesus. Um, so it takes the whole concept of the biblical understanding of the church and makes it about me and not about us collectively. What else? Does well, it? Go ahead. I sure. 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 Absolutely, it's a it's a it's a trend and a growing trend in American evangelicalism, the individuality of each person, and uh, so maybe they come to church, maybe they're a part of a church, but uh, really it doesn't go much beyond they attend worship on Sunday morning. Mhm. Sure. Sure. Yeah, never never seeking the uh, never putting oneself under the authority of the local church and everything that is tied to membership as well. Absolutely. What else does the gospel motivate anything within us? Does it motivate us to do anything? Okay, evangelism, absolutely, that we would bring the gospel to others. What else? What did you say, Wendy? Same, Same, okay. What else? Okay, to relieve suffering, to address the issues of poverty and suffering, as we just read in James chapter 2. What good is it if someone says, I'm hungry, and we say, well, I will pray that the Lord provides you with some food. Great, thank you. <laughs> the Bible is constantly—if you—if you read through the Bible with this single thought in mind, how many times does the Bible address the issue of um, caring for the poor and the downtrodden, and to relieve suffering, and to care for orphans and widows? If you have—if you read through the Bible with just that one thing you wanted to find, um, the last time I—I uh, I think I had looked. At that There are nearly 5,000 commands in the Bible that related directly to caring for the poor, orphans, widows, downtrodden. That's, uh, that's pretty significant. I think we should probably pay attention to that. The gospel motivates that in us. That we would work out that implication. Good. There's, we could go on all night about what the gospel motivates in us. Now, it is important to recognize that the gospel is certainly about individual salvation. We don't deny that, but it's not only about individual salvation. Um, but, and to neglect a message of the forgiveness of sins and neglect the part about individual salvation is to take out the heart of the gospel. We certainly don't want to do that, but to say that the gospel announcement is only about individual salvation leads us to denial of the ramifications of what the gospel does in and through us, what it transforms us to do and be a part of. Um, does anyone know the old, um, it's a hymn, and it's called He Lives? He walks with me, he talks with me, that one. Um, I think there's a tendency in that song toward what we're talking about tonight, the quietest gospel. Here's what the chorus says. Christ Jesus lives today, but then it adds this. He walks with me and he talks with me along life's narrow way. And the reason you and I can know he lives is because he lives within my heart. Okay, so, now... So you don't think wrong. I'm, I'm not assuming the motives of the one who wrote it or those who sing it. Um, there, is, uh, there is an affirmation of the resurrection of Christ and the fact that Christ lives and reigns and rules today. Uh, but the chorus makes it seem like Christ's resurrection took place so that Jesus would keep us company or that we would keep him company. Perhaps you've heard it said before that God created human beings so that he would have have fellowship, as though God was lonely before he created man. Um, And this tends toward that. The proof of the resurrection lies not in an empty tomb, but within our happy hearts. And notice how the claim that Jesus is Heart began beating again on the third day after the crucifixion is spiritualized. It's personalized. It's privatized. It's made to be about me and Jesus. He walks with me. He talks with me. He lives in my heart along life's narrow way. So, again, I'm I'm just pointing out the reality here of what that sort of thinking points to is the fact that we have a tendency toward this. It is easy to move in that direction. So, one of our tendencies is to understand the gospel as only being about individual, personal salvation. Secondly, is this tendency to believe that the only role of Christians in society is evangelism. What is wrong with the statement to say that the Christian's only role in society, in the culture at large, is evangelism. What's wrong with that? Okay, sure, we can, we can start there. It's not our only role. So what... Uh, what certain things, uh, okay, we talked about the alleviation of poverty and suffering and those sorts of things. But what do most of you, not all of you, but what do most of you do all day long? Work, right? You go to work. Does God have anything to say about your work? Yeah, He has a lot to say about your work. Um, so to say that our only role in culture is uh, Evangelism, how does that fit into the fact that we spend the majority of our day at work? Unless your job is mine, then uh, that's probably not a big part of what you do every day. Now, of course, you're amongst your co workers, you find opportunities to share the gospel with them, um, but if you're uh, working on an airplane at Gulfstream, um, you probably don't have uh, the entire day to talk about the gospel. And in fact, I would say that if you are, Um, that you're being disobedient to the scriptures because you're not doing your job as unto the Lord and not unto man. You're stealing from your employer the time that they are giving you in order to work for them. Um, Now, again, opportunities arise. We build relationships with our coworkers, and all of that is built into what we do and who we are as uh, workers and what God has commanded us to be and do in the workforce, but... Evangelism is not our only role in society. What other things can we do as members of a culture in order to bring gospel redemption, to do things in accordance with the Scriptures uh, that would bring about uh, gospel transformation? What's that? Okay, so certainly prayer. We want to pray for uh, not just the salvation of individuals, um, we certainly want to do that, um, but that through that, that there is cultural transformation taking place, right? That institutions in our society are being transformed because the hearts of those who uh, serve and lead within them are being transformed, certainly. What else? What's that? Okay, sure. Uh, do not ever undervalue um, the power of building relationships with others. Um, not as a, you know, ultimately in that we want to have opportunity to speak gospel truth into their lives, but um, we, can, we can build relationships for the sake of loving others and caring for them. Uh, and if they reject the gospel that we bring to them, we don't just toss them aside. We want to continue in a relationship with them. And to love them and care for them, certainly. What else? Disciple, sure. Yeah, there's a there's a, a large t- there's a major tendency to evangelize to see people. Uh, repent and believe in Christ, and that is a great thing. Uh, But to take that beyond into the realm of discipleship is often lost. Uh, So that certainly falls on the shoulders of the church, um, and by the church I don't mean uh, me and the other elders. I mean us, that we are discipling one another. Parents are discipling their children. Husbands are discipling their wives, Uh, that men in the church are building relationships with one another and the older men are discipling the younger men. The older women are discipling younger women. These are all biblical things that need to take place. And this has an influence in the culture around us. Um, So evangelism certainly is a Christian's responsibility, but it isn't right to take that a step further and say that the only role we have in society is evangelism. Um, now, to neglect evangelism is to deny and to not adhere to or be in obedience to uh, the Great Commission, the call to make disciples. Uh, but to make evangelism, the only responsibility is to uh, to create um, a two-tiered hierarchy of Christianity. Here's what I mean by that. Um, throughout church history, there has been um, a... Uh, an well, during the, during the Reformation, the idea of uh, the priesthood of the believer was recovered. It's was recovered by the Reformers. And that is this, that there wasn't two classes of people. One class who was um, the, uh, the super-Christians, the clergy, those who were, uh, were super-spiritual, and then everyone else, the laity, those who um, they had just regular run-of-the-mill jobs and they lived normal lives. Uh, so what that tended to do was to put those who were in spiritual roles as priests or monks or bishops or whatever um, uh, up on a pedestal, and everyone else was uh, just kind of there to, uh, to follow along what they said. Uh, this isn't biblical. Um, at, the, at the death and resurrection of Christ, uh, we see the institution of the priesthood of all believers, That as Christians, we share the same Christian responsibilities. Now, certain people are gifted in certain ways. Um, Some of you, it terrifies you to think about maybe standing here right now and doing this. Uh, But uh, some of you, in doing what you do from day to day, is completely lost on me. I don't know how some of you do your work. It's completely out of my realm. Um, So... Uh, those who work in the church and do ministry um, are at no different level in terms of um, uh, spirituality than those who do not. And in fact, I would make the argument uh, that um, in, in all churches you will find saints sitting in the pews who have uh, far more sanctified lives and spiritual hearts than those who stand in the pulpits. And I don't deny that one bit. Russ? Russ? Mm-hmm. Sure. Great point. Excellent. So if we elevate evangelism to the point that everything else we do is considered less important, um, or just we look at it in a temporal sense, uh, then we we weigh down other Christians uh, with guilt that they shouldn't have to carry. Um, We lift up uh, what we consider... Uh, if we're in this mindset, to be super Christians and everyone else just isn't faithful enough. They just don't trust the Lord enough. Um, But you know what? There are some saints who are absolutely crippled and terrified about the idea of striking up a conversation with someone in order to make a beeline to the cross. Some people, they just freeze and they lose every thought of what they could possibly say to a person to bring them to the gospel. So maybe their calling in that realm is not that they're, uh, they're the, the one who's uh, planting those initial gospel seeds in someone's life. Do they have a role in that in some way? Yeah, certainly. They're actively living out the implications of the gospel. They are being hospitable. They're working hard in their vocation. They're honoring the Lord in what they're doing. Um, all of these sorts of things. And that leads to what Peter talks, that we are prepared to give an answer when someone asks us about the hope that is within us. Um, But while some of us may be able to uh, strike up specific conversations to go directly to the gospel uh, for that purpose in evangelism, uh, some of us may not be so gifted in that. Uh, the Lord gives the gift of evangelism to certain peoples. Um, and so when we say that, that is, that's, that's most important in everything that we do, um, well, the, the Lord places equal importance on various things. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. That's 1 Corinthians 10.31. So if you're evangelizing, do it to the glory of God. If you're changing your kid's diaper, do it to the glory of God. Whatever it is you do, do to the glory of God, and that pretty much brings everything that we do on the same plane. Uh, that one is not more uh, spiritual or more important uh, on that in that realm than the other. Um. <coughs> so I I want to encourage you in that that you not think of yourselves as just. Uh, ordinary citizens fulfilling something uh, because God's called you to be uh, to be a pinky toe instead of the heart that drives the body. Um, pinky toes are important, um, if that's where you think you are. Um, but the whole body is important, and it all functions together. And without the various parts, the whole thing falls apart. Yeah. Sure. Sure. Absolutely. Great. Yeah, that's that's a great point. Um, that our our callings are uh, all of us have multiple callings in our lives, and I can tell you that uh, that s- some of those things need to be prioritized. My calling as a husband and a father is more important than my calling as a pastor. Why? It's not. That's not according to me. That's according to God. What are the qualifications of an elder? That his household is together. Well, if I'm not focused on my wife and my children, uh, then I can't have anything to do with leading a church. Um, so, uh, so there are priorities to our callings. And so you see right there that uh, there, there is no such thing as a super Christian uh, because God has given me a priority before my focus being on um, the, the church as a whole is first uh, to the church in my home, uh, my family. All right, next, the quietest gospel um, carries with it the idea that the church has nothing at all to do with politics or with government. And so you'll hear statements like this, the church should stay out of politics and just preach the gospel, or separation of church and state means that the church should speak to spiritual things and the state should deal with national things, or the gospel is politically innocuous. Uh what's wrong with these statements? Sure, absolutely. We have um uh, in many ways uh we we live our lives if you kind of think of your life as an ice tray. Uh everything has its little spot, but um my my church life is in this little cube tray. Uh, but uh, what I think about uh, and how I work through uh, my ideas about governance and all that sort of thing, that's a whole different trait. They don't go together. So our understanding of the gospel is uh, isolated to Sunday morning and maybe when I read my Bible. Sure. What else? What do you, what do you hear in those statements that seems, uh, seems wrong according to the Scriptures? The church has nothing to do with politics. Okay, sure. So (laughs) we should want to see uh, the Lord reigning and ruling over all things, and he certainly does, but we want to see on some level what God wants we should want. God wants holiness and purity and righteousness. Uh, We should have a desire to see those things worked out if we have some ability to influence right We should want to see biblical principles played out and worked out in the culture around us. So uh, that kind of um, has a big role to do with how we're governed, certainly. Scott? That's right. Sure. 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 Absolutely, sure, sure. If I if I make the statement that Christianity and my understanding of political involvement and politics and everything else are two separate things, uh, then what I'm saying is I have no opinion uh, based on the scriptures about war. I have no opinion based on the scriptures about the death penalty or political issues that um, have been made political like abortion and welfare and all these things. Christians have opinions about these things that are informed by the scriptures and so to say they can't they 're not uh, to be together is um, is really isolating to the point of saying that uh, God is over the realm of spirituality and church and and all of these things but when it comes to the government and politics that's a whole separate issue and we need not look to the scriptures to give us direction there any other thoughts on that okay so here's the story of the quietest gospel the grand narrative of scripture the the overall overarching story of Scripture is personal and applicable primarily to those areas of life that we define as spiritual. So my individual walk with God, my uh, involvement in the church. So it's all based upon or it's focused on uh, what I would consider the spiritual realm of life, The announcement of the quietest gospel is Christ's death and resurrection is a private and personal message that changes individual hearts. It is not concerned with society and government. And the community of the quietest gospel, the church focuses on self-preservation, maintaining its distinctives by resisting the urge to engage prophetically with the culture. So, those who have the quietest mentality, they take, uh, they take the command of Jesus that we would be, not be of the world, and they forget the other part of it, the fact that we have to live life in the world. That means that we're doing something out there. <laughs> uh, and so, uh, communities uh, of faith, churches that take this understanding of the gospel, become very isolated. Very secluded. And, and some of them turn into cults. Uh, because they are so distinct and separated from the rest of the world um, that they begin to um, self interpret what the scriptures say. And that ends up being the ideas of one person that they, that they begin to follow. Um, so here, here's why this counterfeit gospel is uh, attractive to some. One is that it recognizes the danger of the gospel being equated with a political position. I think that the the fear of some evangelicals to to bring Christianity and our understanding of the gospel uh, into the realm of government and politics is that um, we fear that we swing the pendulum to a place where... um, You would hear me standing from the pulpit and talking about telling you who to vote for or how to think on certain political issues. Um, And so uh, the danger is a constant threat, but the answer to that is not um, to simply deny it altogether. This is one of those areas that is not black or white, there's a lot of gray. The Bible calls Christians to walk in a lot more gray areas than it does walking in black or white areas. We need to apply biblical wisdom and discernment to figure those things out and to um, to be able to use Christian liberty uh, appropriately and wisely as we walk to make decisions and, um, and to, to vote and be uh, involved in the political process. Our confession of faith has an entire section that gives instruction to uh, those Christians who would find themselves in a civil office. Those who would find themselves is, as a, a mayor or a governor or a, a city council member. So our confession of faith itself recognizes the fact that there will be Christians, and we should want Christians in those positions. We should desire that. Does it mean they have to be? No. But we should desire that. We should want that. Sure, absolutely. It doesn't because you're a Christian doesn't mean you're the best candidate. Certainly. But we should we should want that. We should at least pray for that, right? Okay, so the the attractiveness to it is uh, because of uh, is based on a fear, a fear that we swing too far in one direction. We certainly want to be careful there. Um, the quietest gospel rightly prioritizes personal evangelism as a duty of the church. It certainly is a duty that we have, but it is not primary. Uh, excuse me, it's not um, it's not the only thing that we are supposed to do there are many other things that the gospel calls us to. The other part of the attractiveness of this counterfeit gospel is that it, doesn't, it, it, lead, it, it keeps us from actually having to do something about things that matter and things that might bring a little discomfort and suffering and persecution. So for example, the story I read at the beginning about the Christians hearing the train full of Jews um, the quietest gospel keeps us from actually having to do something about that. Uh, the quietest gospel keeps us from actually having to address the issue of abortion. We can be quiet about it because the politicians and the, the uh, court system are handling that. And so it's attractive to our flesh because we don't want to enter into the realm of having to actually deal with those difficult, sticky issues, which is interesting because we find the most discomfort walking in the gray areas of the scripture, but usually those things we're quiet about are things that are black and white. <laughs> the Gospels, uh, the implications of the gospel in the, uh, in the area of abortion is, uh, is a pretty black and white issue. There's no gray area there, and yet we uh, deal with it as though it's a gray area. Uh, But when it comes to um, specific candidates that we vote for, uh, we deal with it like a black and white issue uh, when really there's a lot of gray there. Um, So we sort of have flip-flopped because it's a lot easier to not deal with the hard issues and to be quiet about them. So how do we counter this? Well, one, of course, um, as Steve mentioned earlier, that we demonstrate uh, the implications of the gospel in our active concern for the poor and needy. As I said, there are over 5,000 commands in the Scripture addressing this specifically. Uh, that means we should probably be concerned about doing something about that. Um, it's uh, Several people a month come by here, by this church, asking for help with uh, power bills, water bills, light bills. Uh, they want food, they need clothes, whatever it is. Um, now, I'll be the first to tell you that the chances of us being... Um, taken advantage of are greater than us helping someone who actually needs help or isn't uh, on the take. Um, But what does the the gospel motivate us to do? To do our best, to discern what a person's real needs are, and to meet those needs. Jesus said, give to those who ask. What did he say after that? It's a trick question. Nothing. (laughs) He said, give to those who ask. Um, so does that mean uh, that we just, every time someone asks us for something, we just, we, there's, there's some wisdom to be applied there. But we need to err, uh, to err on the side of actually helping people <laughs> and not seeking to find reasons to always turn them away. All right, so we want to counter this by actively seeking to care for those who are poor and those who are needy. Um, What about the idea or the issue of evangelism? How can we counter the quietest gospel and rightly balance the idea of evangelism, calling, vocation, and what we do with our day-to-day lives? How does all that balance? Okay, sure. So, obviously, uh, we, want to, um, we want to live out all that we do, uh, whether we're working, whether we're spending time with our family, whether we're going out to eat with some friends. Whatever it is that we're doing, we want to do to the glory of God, certainly. Uh, let's get specific about that. So, maybe someone tell us, how do you do your job to the glory of God? And laced into that is the commands of God that pertain to things like evangelism, hospitality, these sorts of things. How does all that work together? Or does it? Sure. So, uh, it's been a while since I've been in uh, a job outside of the church. Uh, But I do remember, and I guilty is is charged, one of them, to find ways to not work hard all the time. Uh, Certainly, all of you probably have or do work with people like that on some level. Um, That is not a good gospel witness, is it? We recognize God gave me this job He's providing for me and for my family through it. And therefore, I should be the hardest worker here because I am working onto the Lord and not onto man, Colossians 3.23. And so we are giving a gospel witness by um, serving our master, who is our, ultimately our master is God, but we have an earthly master in that realm too. It is our boss, our employer. We're serving them. We've agreed to, I do this job, you give me this pay. Um, we've agreed to that, therefore, I need to do that job and be a good steward of the time and the resources that I've been given. Certainly. What else? What are your coworkers? Are they simply just your coworkers? Does God have a purpose for you being there in the midst of them? Okay, so uh, we want to find fellowship with others, but we want to be careful with that word. We use that in relationship um, with other believers. Fellowship, when we use that word, we're talking about our relationship to other believers. Sure. Okay, so if, if I want to be intentional about my relationships on the job in order that I can uh, be, um, get to a place where I certainly am able to, uh, to bring the truth of the gospel by word, How can I do that? Okay, sure. So I'm going to be intentional, I hope, about learning about my coworkers, right? When I have opportunity, eat lunch with them, talk to them while we're working on our widgets or whatever we do, Uh, that we're talking about life. About family, about things that matter. Getting to know them, understanding who they are. Good. What else? We clock out and we see them tomorrow. Do we ever have anything else to do with them? We should. We should. Yeah. Earl, since you brought it up, I'll share it. What's that? (laughs) Earl sent me a very encouraging to me, an email. Uh, And he said in there, there's a man that he worked with that he has invited to church many times, and the guy won't have anything to do with him. But Earl realized in the midst of that, um, you know, I invite him to come to church. He's not even a Christian, so he has no motivation to go to church. But I've never asked him to go fishing with me or to just hang out. Maybe I should do that instead. That was encouraging to me because um, that is is the reality. It's easy for us to invite people, hey, come to church sometime. Well, we know probably they're not coming. But it's a lot harder to step out and to say, hey, let's hang out. (laughs) Let's go to dinner or your family come over to my house and we'll spend some time together. Uh, let's go sit out on a boat in the, wi- in the quiet waters for a while, uh, and we can talk. That's difficult. Puts us in some uncomfortable situations, maybe. Maybe not for you. Uh, but it's a lot different than just saying, come to church. I'm actually taking an active interest in you, and I want to build a relationship with you and get to know you. That leads to a lot more gospel interaction than me trying to rush through that at the job uh, when I should be working instead. So I hope this is stirring some ideas or some thought. Whatever your vocation, whatever your calling in life that you're thinking through, how is it that I have the opportunity to be a um, to, to be working? Out the implications of the gospel to where I'm not silent about it. I'm not silent about it in deed, as we read in James, but I'm also not silent about it in word. Jesus came proclaiming the gospel in word and in deed. What is implied in the fact that the gospel is proclaimed in word? That, okay? That we're speaking the truth, therefore that we know the truth, And in the end, that we are actually saying something. Uh, Relational evangelism works to a point, but it gets us to that point where we have to say something. (laughs) The gospel is a proclamation. It is good news. Well, how do we find out the news? It's reported. We have to report the good news. We can't just do that by deed. We need to do it in word as well. So it's very, very important that we think through the implications of the gospel in our day-to-day lives. Um, and then in the, the wider realm of uh, our social responsibility as Christians, I want to read this to you as um, some uh, some things to kind of uh, think about. The saints who went before us were courageous enough to denounce uh, infanticide in ancient Rome and rescue abandoned babies from trash heaps. In England, men like William Wilberforce and John Wesley exposed the horrors of the slave trade and organized Christians into groups that would fight for the rights of people considered to be inferior. Pastors like Martin Luther King Jr. have reminded us of every human being that every human being bears the image of God regardless of their race. And today, Christians are working to put an end to human trafficking and sexual slavery and to rid Africa of the scourge of AIDS. During the rise of the Third Reich, not all the Christians were silent. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was gripped by the gospel of grace. He formed a coalition that stood against Hitler and eventually he paid for his resistance with his life. If you don't know the story of Bonhoeffer, he organized a group of Christians who were going to assassinate uh, Adolf Hitler. Now, uh, we could talk some other time about whether or not that was a biblical uh, approach, but they thought in being faithful to the gospel that it was a greater good to assassinate him um, as vigilantes. In 1933, he preached a powerful message in which he pleaded with his countrymen to recognize how the true gospel announcement was being overshadowed by nationalism. Bonhoeffer saw that the gospel announcement was being lost, and with it the powerful witness of the gospel community. He urged the churches to return to a strong confession, confession of the Lordship of Christ. This is a quote from his sermon, "Come you, come you who have been left alone, you who have lost the church. Let us return to holy writ. Let us go forth and seek the church together, for the times which are times of collapse to the human understanding. May well be for her a great time of building. Church, remain a church. Confess, confess, confess. Confessing the lordship of Christ is what he's talking about. That that is to be a part of who we are as a gospel-centered people. That we are in all realms of life concerned with and confessing the lordship of Christ. That Christ is Lord over the issue of abortion we need to turn to the scriptures and see what he says about it, and then actually put feet to it. Do something about it, and not simply sit back and wait for the court system to handle it. Um, any other thoughts? I have a lot more I could share, but we're out of time. Any other thoughts uh, or uh, comments before we close? All right, next week we will look at the activist gospel. It's a very popular uh, counterfeit these days. So um, I ask, uh, Steve, can you pray for us to close?